put on the whole army of God, that ye may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. So in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 15, Paul continues his description of the panoply of God's armor. That word panoply comes from the Greek word, which is usually translated the whole armor of God. It's a singular word. What Paul is saying is put on all of it. Not put on individual pieces here and there as you may feel you require those for some certain situation in your life. Put on the whole armor of God. Put it on. Keep it on. If you feel that it has slipped in some way, put it on again. Keep it on even when you're sleeping, as I think it was one of the commentaries I quoted from last week pointed out. Even a fly might venture to crawl upon a sleeping lion, and it is when Christians sleep, when we are at peace, when we are at rest, when we are not focused on things like spiritual warfare, that Satan's attacks are often most effective against us. And so Paul says, put on the panoply, put on the whole armor of God. And in verse 15, continuing his description of that, he says, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. So he started, if you think about it this way, in the middle with the belt or the girdle of truth. He has now worked his way to ground level. And then he's going to work his way back up and will eventually speak of the helmet of salvation making clear that the reason that we are to put on the whole armor, the panoply of God, is that when we do, we are covered from head to toe against the schemes and the attacks of the enemy. All of this in a spiritual sense, of course. But it's still important because, as Martin Lloyd-Jones noted, this third piece, which has reference to the feet, reminds us again that the entire personality is engaged in this spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not a mere spiritual issue that attacks us on Sunday mornings when we get up and we're thinking of going to church and we have that temptation that, oh, well, maybe today I might just as well stay home. Spiritual warfare is something that Satan directs at us constantly. Our enemies, the world, the devil, and even our own flesh never stop attacking us, says the Heidelberg Catechism. This third piece reminds us of that. It reminds us, in the words of Lloyd-Jones, that every part of us as Christians is engaged in this conflict. We are not Christians in sections and portions. Our faith takes up the whole life and the whole man, so we have to protect ourselves at every single point. We might add not only at every single point, but at every single moment. 
from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. Having said that, when Paul came to the feet, he doesn't actually name the piece of armor. He actually does this in a couple of cases in this section. There are places where he says, and we'll see this, the shield of faith and the sword of the spirit, where he links particular spiritual attributes to particular pieces of the armor. Here, he does not do do so. Well, the English Standard Version says, as many modern versions say, as shoes for your feet. In this case, some other translations are more accurate, reflecting that this whole statement is the third in a string of adverbial participles that that will be on the test, that Paul used to describe just how it is that a Christian is meant to stand. One translation has it this way, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked. All those having and ing words, those are the participles. They're not separate commands. The imperative is to stand, to stand firm. That's the command, but we are to stand in this way. We are to stand by having put on the belt of truth, the righteousness of Christ as a breastplate, and the shoes, the preparation of the gospel of peace for our feet. I know, grammar, again, nobody likes it. But it's important because when we understand that these participles are there to explain the word stand, then we understand that the panoply of God's armor is given for this singular purpose. God gives us the whole armor so that we will be able to stand, to withstand, and having done all, to stand. And that puts clarification into the meaning of each piece. As we read a moment ago, we are not Christians in sections and portions. It's not as if our heads need the helmet of salvation, but our feet are meant to be evangelists. Nor is this a string of, of separate commands and suggestions. Well, you need to be saved, that's job one, but then you also need to have faith. You need to know your Bible and be ready to share the gospel with others. We could find all of those things as commands, as exhortations in scripture, but not here. Here, The imperative is to stand with our whole being against the attacks and schemes of the devil and having done all to stand. That's the point. That's what Paul was saying. And it's in this light that we turn to verse 15, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Now as we understand Paul's development of this analogy, it's worth remembering that he's thinking of a typical Roman soldier And given his comment in verse 20 where he stated that he was an ambassador in chains, we believe that it's very, very possible that Paul was literally chained to soldiers like this while he was writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. So at some point as he's sitting there with a chain going from his arm to the arm of a soldier, perhaps from his leg, we're not sure but as he's sitting there, we, we think he, he glances down at the footwear of 
the soldier who would have been standing there next to him. And there's general agreement at this point that what Paul had in mind was the caliga, the half boot of the legionnaires, which was a type of a sandal, but not like the kind of sandals that we're familiar with. If you looked at the picture in the email, it was a statue and it was a little bit hard to see. But this was a sandal that more or less completely enclosed the foot of the soldier in stout leather straps. And this offered a high degree of flexibility, but it protected the soldier's foot from various obstacles. Most important of all to the design was the heavy studded sole. They were very thick and they were embedded with hobnails to provide that soldier with stability and mobility and perhaps most of all, protection. The old Puritan Matthew Henry noted the use of this footwear was to defend the feet against the gall traps and sharp sticks which were wont to be laid privily in the way to obstruct the marching of the enemy, those who fell upon them being unfit to march. On a day when most armies marched barefoot, or with only soft leather to protect their feet, this was an effective tactic. You sharpen some sticks, you put them in the ground, cover them with some leaves, and as the soldiers are marching, marching along, all of a sudden, their feet are pierced with these sticks and they're not able to march anymore. But Rome had an answer. Rome addressed this issue by providing the soldiers footwear that had these very thick, heavy, studded soles and then embedding those soles with hobnails, like studs on a winter tire here in Canada, to provide for increased traction and stability, both on the march and in the battle himself. These shoes then, these, these caligae, provided almost a platform on which a person could stand. If you could get some of the hobnails into the ground, then you're not going to slip and slide, and you are standing in, on something that's actually protecting your feet from the ground and from the obstacles that could be there. And this is what we understand the apostle had in mind when he translated the word that, that we have as readiness in verse 15. It could also be rendered preparedness or even equipment. As one commentator notes, the Greek word hetomasia occurs here only in the New Testament, but in the Septuagint it occurs several times and tends curiously to denote equipment in the special form of a base or pedestal. And we have an example of that in Ezra chapter 3, verse 3, the Greek version of which would translate, and they set the altar upon its base. And that base is the equipment, that's the readiness, that's the preparation. We want to make sure that when that altar is put in place, it's going to stay where it belongs. And that's the very same Greek word that Paul uses in Ephesians chapter 6. Mool went on, such a meaning is obviously in point here, where the imagery suggests not a readiness to run, but foothold for standing. And that's why I'm saying it's important we understand what this reference to standing is, is for. That we're not being told here to go run on the mountains with beautiful feet like those who bring the gospel in some of the Old Testament prophets. We are being told to take the gospel and to stand. To stand fast and firm with it. In other words, the gospel of peace, the gospel of the kingdom of God gives us that place to stand. The gospel of peace is the support which we need 
in this battle against rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of, of, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we're not talking about putting on the readiness given by the gospel of peace in a vacuum, as if Paul were suggesting simple readiness to proclaim the gospel whenever and wherever we might have the opportunity. That is, of course, true. And we need to be ready to do that. But here we're talking about understanding the gospel as so basic, so foundational to our identity as Christians and as people created in the image of God that the gospel becomes our default response to every situation. The obvious question then is how? I was thinking about this and I realized we've come to one of those places where the Apostle Paul and God himself who breathed out this word through the Holy Spirit have given us kind of a synecdoche, a reduction that can be taken at just face value, put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. But at the same time, it suggests a myriad of other possibilities. I mentioned this when Lloyd-Jones came to the phrase, the schemes of the devil, and then spent, I think, 15 weeks just going one by one through what he perceived to be the schemes that Satan directs at us. Well, what is the peace or the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace? One way of thinking of it is to visualize Russian dolls, like those, those dolls that look kind of like fancy painted eggs and when you take one apart there's another one inside that's just a little bit smaller and then you take apart that one and there's another one inside. I looked online and I saw some of these things have like 30 dolls nested all inside each other building out to the outside. And when we're looking at the panoply of God's armor as a singular concept, we can conceive of each part that Paul mentions being integral to and contained inside all of the other parts. So we put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, and then we find that it is the gospel of peace, first of all, because it is backed by the truthfulness, the faithfulness of God, which is where we started, put on the belt of truth. The gospel of peace brings peace precisely because it is based on God's guarantee to keep his promises. Paul mentioned it in Ephesians chapter 1 when he wrote, In him, that is in Christ, you also, when you heard the word of truth, which is another name for the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. The gospel is the gospel of peace because having come to God through the gospel of peace, we have come to realize that God is faithful. He keeps his promises and he gives us his own spirit as a guarantee of those promises. Similarly, in Romans 5, verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So the gospel gives peace, even in the midst of spiritual warfare, even in the midst of the struggle that we endure from day to day. If we let that be the lens through which we view everything, then we have peace in that struggle. You imagine a soldier who's fighting, 
who's not caring for his own life or for his own safety because he's convinced that the cause for which he fights is right and because he's convinced that in the end that cause will prevail. So he has peace, whatever may happen in the specifics of that particular battle. In addition, last Lord's Day, the gospel we saw is the gospel of peace because it clothes us in the righteousness of Christ himself. As Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 3, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. This is so important. Paul's talking about I want to be found in him. I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness which is my own. Not having a righteousness which I have achieved by my own human effort. That was the very essence of Pharisaism. But the righteousness which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And as we noted the last couple of weeks, all of these pieces of the armor that Paul urges us to put on are God's. God gives them. They're not from us. They're not something that we create ourselves. They're something that God gives and something that we put on so that we can stand. And when we stand in the righteousness of Christ, that way when the accuser of the brothers shows up and he starts pointing his fingers to our sins and our failures, we simply point him to God who grants and credits to us the perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness of Christ. As if we had never sinned or been sinners, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Those are words from the Heidelberg Catechism. I read them about as often as I can figure out a way to work them into the sermon because I want us to think about what that means that God looks at every one of us who have come to him through faith in Jesus Christ as if we had never sinned nor been sinners. And not just that the negative side of the account has been paid for, but on the positive side, as if we had been as perfectly obedient as Christ was obedient for us. Do you believe this? Have you accepted this free gift of God with a believing heart? Do you understand it's not about working your way to God by being a decent person or something along those lines. It's about wrapping yourself in the righteousness of Christ, that righteousness that comes from God through faith in him so that we can be assured that however sinful we have been, there is no sin which is too great for the grace of God. Do you believe this? If not, then let me urge you right now to turn away from sin and turn to God through faith in Jesus Christ. There is no need to wait. There's no need to pray a certain prayer. There's no need to walk in an aisle or anything along those lines. Now is the accepted time, Paul wrote in another place. Now is the day of salvation. You can turn to him. And cry out to him in repentance and faith anytime, anywhere. And if you have, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a profound truth. 
because we condemn ourselves, we allow others to condemn us, we accept the condemnation that the accuser of the brothers aims our way as a fiery dart, but we don't have to because we are wrapped in the righteousness of Christ, which is why the gospel brings peace. Because we don't have to think, oh, but you're right. Because you know what? When Satan accuses us, he is right. We're all sinners. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And if we had to be saved on that basis, then we would have no peace with God. But we come to him in the righteousness of Christ. The gospel assures us that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the assurance This is the promise of God. This is the shield of faith we're going to talk about. The faith that saves us and the faith that proceeds from that salvation that we put on as a helmet. It's the assurance that if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? And where do we find all of this? We find it proclaimed in the gospel of Jesus Christ, revealed in the sword of the Spirit, which is the very sure and certain word of God. Because the word of God is the gospel. And the gospel is the word of God. Every word, every jot, every tittle from Genesis to Revelation I feel like I should explain what that means. (laughs) A jot was the smallest letter, and a tittle was a breath mark, just a little, little stroke of the pen. We don't believe in verbal inspiration. We believe in jot and tittle inspiration, that every word that God gave to his church came through the inspiration and the work of the Holy Spirit carrying those authors along. And we need that assurance because it's in that assurance that every bit of this book is God's own word that we find the peace that we have with God based on his promises. This is the basis on which we engage every argument and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity for the obedience of Christ. This is the readiness. This is the equipment, the preparation of the gospel of peace in which and on which we stand. It was this readiness that made David, the sweet psalmist of Israel, write, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? If you go back and you read the life of David, there were a lot of people that he might have been afraid of and might have had good cause to be afraid of. There were people who were out for his life constantly. But he comes along and he says, it doesn't matter. The Lord is my light. The Lord is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. It's that peace that comes from the gospel 
that has the writer to the Hebrews quoting Old Testament scripture saying, because God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, we may say with confidence, I will not be afraid. It was this readiness that Martin Luther, having been ordered at the Diet of Worms to recant and repudiate his writings, said, unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils because they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not recant anything for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Now the close to this quote is occasionally disputed but one scholar has written Luther's collected works which were issued later under his supervision, give the closing words, so here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God, amen. And whether or not Luther said those exact words at the Diet of Worms, they reflect precisely the attitude of a Christian soldier who has put on the panoply of God, who has put on as a part of that the readiness that is given by the gospel of peace. It's the attitude of one whose conscience is captive to the word of God and obedience to Christ. It's the attitude of someone who stands on nothing less than the promises of God himself, who knows that stability and mobility and all of that which we need to fight in this warfare does not come from us. It comes from God himself. And it is communicated to us through the gospel of peace. When we understand that this can be our prayer as well, here I stand on the gospel, on the equipment of the gospel of peace. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Let's pray. Father, open our ears to hear and our hearts to receive the word through these ancient scriptures spoken long ago, but so relevant for us this very day. And then help us, Father, to incorporate the gospel into our lives in such a way that as we go out from this place, it becomes the filter, the lens through which we see everything and through which we respond to everything that happens in this world. That in the peace that we can only experience when we realize there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We may go forth as joyful warriors and Father may be ready to stand against the world and the devil and even our own flesh. In Jesus' name, amen.